Hello and welcome back to Commish Talks, the only podcast about the world of sports from the perspective of a commissioner. Before we get started, we'd appreciate it if you could like, favorite, or subscribe to Commish Talks on your favorite podcast platforms. This week on Commish Talks, we had the pleasure of having on Tommy George, the owner and president of the Sports Advisory Group. Tommy is a true class act and had started his career as a referee for several sports leagues and later found his way into sports M&A. In short, his company sits in the middle of buyers and sellers of minor league sports teams. In today's episode, Josh and Tommy go into great detail about what happens in the process of buying and selling a team. We hope you enjoy. Tommy, appreciate having you on. Um, Sports Advisory Group, you're the owner. And today on Commish Talks, we're going to talk a little about the world of valuations and the buying and selling of teams. You obviously being the expert across America in this realm, um, you're the person that's going to lead the path for all of our listeners to find out what they should be doing to buy a minor league sports team or if they're owning one to sell a minor league sports team. So that's what we're going to tackle today. Before we jump into it, though, give us a little bit of your background, how you ended up in this role and where you come from. Yeah, sure, sure. So I'm from Frederick, Maryland, uh, about 40 minutes north of, uh, of D.C., um, I got into uh, got into sports and got into uh, hockey, particularly at a young age. Um, played hockey growing up. Played all the way all the way through college, and um, I had uh, I had refereed hockey since I was about 12 years old, and had always loved it as a way to kind of stay on the ice and stay at the rink and make some money and different things along the way. And hockey just became my passion and, and everything that I wanted to do. It was to, was to be involved in hockey in some capacity and be involved at a high level. And when I got to college and, and was, you know, playing and I realized at the same, about the same time period in my life that I wanted to pursue officiating in hockey and ultimately try to get hired by the National Hockey League as an official. and realized that I had an opportunity based on my geography and some of my experiences as a younger official and some of the camps that I had attended as a, as a referee um, to be hired by some of the minor professional leagues as an on-ice official at a, at a young age, which ultimately helped my officiating career and my officiating path, um, getting hired by the American Hockey League at 19 years old and the ECHL at 18 or 19 years old or whatever it was and some of the other leagues and really became everything that I was about for for such a long time. Had the opportunity to do a couple of international tournaments and um, world championships and then got into college hockey and officiating college hockey along the way and um, you know was very fortunate with some assignments and different things and ultimately trying to get hired by the National Hockey League. And so it all kind of came to a head as I got selected to officiate the 2014 Winter Olympics in Sochi. And that was kind of a, a, a opportunity for me to be on a, obviously a world stage, but we were working alongside with National Hockey League officials and um, the representatives from the National Hockey League who were part of the officiating hiring committee and supervisory committee were all there and um it was a great opportunity for me and about the same time right after all that um i you know had an amazing experience at the olympics and 
wouldn't have traded for the world. They had some changes in leadership and I kind of read the writing on the wall of where I was in age. And um, at the time I was only about 30 years old, but I kind of read the writing on the wall and decided that, you know, I had achieved a lot of things that I wanted to do and I could still officiate pretty much as much as I wanted at some of the highest levels in the American hockey league and division one college hockey. And just decided at that point, um, it was, uh, it was time to pursue a different career. And, uh, parallel to that whole officiating career, I had gotten a sports management degree from Western New England college in Springfield, Massachusetts. I had worked for special Olympics, Maryland for seven years. So I had some experience in sports and some experience obviously with a degree and from a business degree at a, at a university, um, you know, was, was looking for something more in the sports world and sports landscape. And coincidentally enough, Larry Grimes, who founded Sports Advisory Group, um, he lives about 15 minutes from where I live in Maryland. And we got acquainted, started talking, and he was looking to add somebody to his staff. So I joined Sports Advisory Group in 2015, and um, Larry had taught me a lot along the way. And then I, um, I purchased the company from Larry in 2019, and Larry is still very much involved with our day-to-day -day business of our company, but we also have an associate in Fort Worth, Texas, and Bill Yates, and then another associate in Fairfield, Connecticut, and Jesse Grant, and another associate in Richmond, Virginia, and Brian Keswick. So we have regional offices now, and um, the good thing with that, as um, you know, you can probably imagine, is I can still officiate as much as I want. So I'm still refereeing the American Hockey League a good bit, and also still refereeing in uh, in Hockey East and Division One college hockey. And I love it. It's meant so much to me, and it's been an opportunity to stay involved in professional sports and NCAA sports, um, but at the same time, that whole path opened a lot of doors for um, what I do with Sports Advisory Group. Um, I, we do a lot of business in the ECHL and have worked very closely with Ryan Creelin and a number of the owners in the ECHL. And um, I was an on-ice, full-time on-ice official in that league for two or three seasons. And, um, you know, coincidentally enough, people from these different teams who we've worked with and represented, I have been to that city, whether it's, you know, um, uh, Charleston, South Carolina, or um, anywhere else, uh, you know, Manchester, New Hampshire, you kind of name it. And I've personally been there and, and been through that town and been through that city and um, been on the ice with some of their teams in a prior life, as I like to call it. And it's, um, it's unique from that perspective. So well, uh, let me just stop you right there. I mean, a couple of things. One is you being an official, you're near and dear to a commissioner's heart because you're the only <laughs> team we root for and we're, that we're allowed to root for us. So we, we appreciate officials and referees on this podcast. Second is I think for our listeners out there and especially in regards to sports advisory group, people are probably are not aware there's brokers of professional sports teams. People call you up say, I want to buy a professional sports team. How do I do that? And then owners of professional sports even call you and say, hey, I'm going to list with you. You're my broker. Go sell this thing. So walk our listeners through what this looks like from both the buyer and seller's part as you enter the process of doing one or the other. Yeah, sure. So um, our company, we specialize, back up a little bit, we specialize in 
M&A advisory consulting services for both buyers and sellers of professional sports teams. Um, we have worked across every single level of minor professional sports and uh, with major league sports owners as well, uh, assisting existing owners with helping, you know, kind of place and prepare their team for an eventual sale. And then at the same time, um, working with and finding prospective owners and buyers for uh, professional sports teams as well. So our work on the sell side advisory piece um, is just through networking really at the end of the day, reaching out to existing owners, reaching out to commissioners like you and, and just letting people know exactly what we do, exactly what our scope of services involves. And we've been very successful with referrals and word of mouth and um, with positive feedback from the existing ownership groups that we've worked with along the way. The other piece of that is, you know, who becomes a professional sports team owner? Um, and that answer is very, very difficult to answer because it can be one of, you know, a thousand different types of people, whether it's somebody who owns a business in the community where that team lives. It could be somebody who's passionate about sports, somebody who's passionate about maybe that league or that level, um, you know, somebody who's passionate about small business or someone who has an intrigue in a particular market or geography. So there's a lot of different things that come with that. And then ultimately, um, you know, kind of going back to the officiating piece, we then kind of officiate a deal really and act as a, a referee at times between, you know, putting these two people together and help, uh, help negotiating out what could be an ultimately fair deal for both the buyer and seller in the process. So, so, so you, you missed one party, the league, cause I know you and I have worked through deals together too. <laughs> yeah. Because there yeah. is a barrier. And I think this was a separate podcast. So you talk about the barriers to buying a, a professional sports team. And one barrier is you need to get through the league because yeah, and, a buyer and, has to make an application to the league to say you're qualified to be a buyer sure. or owner in this league. So talk about sure. that a little bit. Yeah, and so that's one of the biggest pieces that we have as we talk to prospective owners is education. Um, educating these potential owners on leagues, sports. What's the difference between minor league affiliated baseball and independent professional baseball? What's the difference between the United States Hockey League and owning a team in the ECHL? Um, you know, and what are the requirements of ownership in those particular leagues? And what are, you know, the interests of some of the owners in those particular leagues? And, you know, better than two thirds of our conversations with prospective owners is that educational piece of it and giving them the information that they're going to need so that we can help them find ultimately what might be their goal of owning a team in a certain league or a certain market. Um, but working with the league's commissioners and the league staff, we can ultimately make sure that when we get there or we present a buyer to an ownership group, that the ownership group that's looking to sell their team, they know that A, the person is well-educated. They're going to know what the steps in the process are. They're going to know 
exactly what they're going to need from a preparation and application standpoint with the LIG, what the timing of a prospective deal is going to look like, and then ultimately um, be able to understand that the valuation of a sports team is certainly different than most traditional uh, business metrics that uh, that are typically applied when trying to find a value. Yep. Tommy, I think you went on mute. Yeah, right sorry. Now. That's okay. I want to dump in, jump into that a little bit. So uh, we talked about valuation, but before valuations, how much do you advise clients on the seller's P&L? So you receive obviously as part of due diligence and you're representing the buyer in this case, the P&L and what it looks like. Walk through some of the questions you would have for the seller or what it would look like for the buyer and what they should be asking. Yeah, from, from a seller's perspective, you know, some of the things that we will ask are typically related to maybe more so questions that a buyer is going to ask that particular seller. Um, so for example, if we see something on a profit loss statement that stands out to us, you know, for sure, a particular buyer is going to say, Hey, what is this line item? And a, what does it mean? And then B, why is it different comparatively speaking between year one and year two? And so for us, we like to do as much research as we can so that we can ultimately be armed and ready to answer those questions on behalf of our client. But then at the same time, to help make sure that a seller has realistic expectations and, you know, is, is ultimately understanding of the things that are going to be asked of them as they go through this process. So a lot of analysis of maybe little line item pieces of why did group ticket sales change from one year to the next? And that answer could be as something as, you know, we categorize some group tickets in group ticket sales in year one and then in year two as a partial ticket uh, partial ticket sales revenue and, and that's how they could match out. But if you see, you know, $50,000 in year one on a line item and then year two, it's zero. That's obviously a question that, that is going to need to get answered by the seller. So it's going through those things. And then from the buyer's perspective too, you know, a sports P and L isn't necessarily like one you would see from, um, you know, from, from a traditional business, you know, and, and that involves whether it's trying to figure out what a commission from a concessionaire, um, what, what does that mean? What does, um, what's the difference between full season ticket packages and partial, partial season ticket packages and helping to delineate some of the questions that come with the operational piece of the sport. So in baseball, you know, what are some of the baseball operations expenses? What are some of the hockey operations expenses? Um, what are some of the travel requirements or the salary requirements for these particular leagues or teams or personnel or players too? So um, because we're fortunate in what, you know, just what we do to be able to see all these things, we typically have a pretty good understanding of, of being able to identify a lot of these questions that are going to come well in advance before you know before we present it to a prospective buyer i think correct me if i'm wrong too you know in this example there's a local owner 
He's owned the team since his inception. You look at the sponsorship line that I mean, say, all right, we can go sell that much sponsorship. The reality is when that local owner sells it, a lot of that sponsorship goes away because that sponsorship was tied to their other businesses that they own. Sure. Talk, walk a little about the risk of a uh, remote buyer, a remote owner, uh, absentee owner, I know some cities call it. Talk to talk us a little bit about how you advise clients about buying teams in other cities. Yeah, I, I think a lot of that has to be done on a relationship aspect. And, you know, for a buyer, a buyer has to be very cognizant of just that and understanding that, you know, John Doe, who's been kind of the, the quote unquote mayor of, of whatever town or city and also owns the baseball team, he does have a lot of connections. Um, at the same time, what's the taste left in the mouth, you know, by, this particular seller within the community? Was he well-loved? Was he well-received? Does he owe people money? Um, you know, was, was he a good guy? Was he, was he a guy that, you know, was giving away a lot of tickets, you know, and merchandise, which, yeah, that can seem great that, you know, John Doe, the seller has given away lots and lots of tickets over the years. But in 2020, we're all about revenue and we're all about, sales and profits, um, you know, are, are we giving away profit? Are we giving away revenue by doing that? Are we able to capture that revenue? And, and so those are important pieces for a buyer to ask as they come into this and being able to understand who that person was and who they are in the community. And then ultimately, how can you come in from the outside perspective and maintain the status quo within that community and within that market. And, and is that feasible? And, and a lot of times it is. And, you know, and a lot of times for other potential owners, it becomes very difficult and you really have to make sure that, um, you know, those buyers who come in, they have a realistic expectation of how they're going to be able to continue to capture and motivate that particular market. Because if they don't, they can find themselves in a lot of trouble pretty quickly. You know, maybe it's, it's losing part of the fan base or losing a key sponsor in the community, um, you know, and, and with businesses that, you know, only have a, a certain amount of revenue, if you lose a, a significant sponsor or stakeholder in your team, that can be tough to recapture and can take several years of effort to earn back those revenues. So it's, it's yeah. a, it's a very fine line. Ultimately though, we've, we've seen that the, the ownership groups that can come in and work with the seller and develop those same relationships with the stakeholders in the community, the sponsors in the community, um, and, and have a gradual transition. They're the ones who have been most successful. And a lot of times sellers or excuse me, sponsors and those stakeholders, um, they often get rejuvenated by kind of some new blood that's brought into that community, which in turn can ultimately spur revenue and can spur sponsorship and spur sales and different things and can really be a, uh, a nice path for added revenue for a new ownership group. So, yeah, we, you know, I touched on something too. That's always a risk. You go into a deal, you look at the PNL, you interview the staff that's there, and then all of a sudden you own the team. There's all these little skeletons that start popping up and sure. maybe it's an unpaid bill here or there, but it's more like 
yeah, well, we gave that guy 100 free tickets every year because, you know, he's a good guy and he's buddies with that and he's expecting that again. Yeah. We'll give those 100 free tickets. And so you're trying to – I see a lot of times where a seller is papering the town with tickets because things aren't going well. And now you have to – the person coming in and strip the market of all you those. You have to be the bad guy. You yeah. have to be the bad guy. And that, and that, that stinks. Um, mm-hmm. That stinks. And, um, you know, that, that's why really it helps to – um, to have somebody like our company or somebody else alongside you in the process to really be able to show you like, Hey, we need to, we need to talk about this or we need to talk about this and what's going on here and help to kind of be able to ask you, um, those key questions. And then same thing on is if we were working with a seller, you know, as, as we're helping that seller prepare for a sale, those are questions that we're going to ask them. And those are things that we're going to tell them like, Hey, you got to be able to answer the bell when this question comes up because mm-hmm. it's going to have an impact on this new owner. And mm-hmm. ultimately it could impact how the deal is structured, excuse me, structured and um, you know, the mechanics of, of how we, we get to the finish line. Well, speaking of uh, the finish line and kind of where the rubber meets the road valuations. So what I, what my finding is, sellers in sports always think their asset is worth more than the rest of the world. So (laughs) how do we talk about valuations with sellers? It's like a homeowner, right? An agent comes in and says, yeah, no, you should probably list your price about here. And the seller's like, wait, 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 you're way low. We're way low. We should be more. How do you talk to your sellers about setting valuations? How in sports do we predict valuations? Is it different for each sport? Is baseball different than hockey, hockey different than so-and-so Are leagues different? Tell us the, the narrative on that front. Yeah. So first and foremost, I tell people who we educate on being a prospective owner, I tell them this sports ownership in general, it's, um, it's much like owning a classic car in that it's a boutique asset. It can certainly make you money, but along the way, um, there's some things you need to consider as you kind of go into this and really the long-term appreciation of a sports team is where, where the ownership really makes its money. Um, you know, if you look at, um, you know, look, I think one of the best examples and, and I'm going to get the, the number wrong here, but the municipality in Columbus, Ohio, they own the baseball team there, the triple the A baseball team and they bought it and, the seventies or eighties for something like $50,000 or something like that. And, you know, most recently Forbes had that same team valued at probably close to $50 million in terms of what it would worth. So that's an idea of the growth that can occur along the way. Now at the same time, um, you know, the valuations themselves are completely based on a, a comp basis and that comp basis varies within every single league, sport, and then level uh, within those sports as well. So a, um, a minor league affiliated baseball team is going to have a different value than a summer collegiate wood bat baseball team in, uh, in, in New England or, or wherever that summer collegiate wood bat league might play. An ECHL team valuation might be different than a valuation of a team in the Western Hockey League or the Ontario Hockey League. And um, every single league and level, like I said, is different. Um, and you have to be able to 
be educated on what you're getting yourself into and what exactly it is that you're looking for as a prospective owner um, when you start this process and understanding that if I have X million of dollars, that may not get me controlling interest or 100% uh, of the equity of a team in a certain league. But, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars might get you, you know, controlling interest of a summer collegiate wood bat baseball team. And so really being able to educate those buyers then and what they're getting themselves into and, you know, how the market and the sport also affects, you know, what their financial capability is along the way. I mean, let me ask you this question. So we'll take hockey, for instance, ECHL team is a hundred thousand dollar profit. AHL team is a hundred thousand dollar profit. What's the value of each team? Uh, I don't know if I can talk about that. <laughs> Just in general, why is there a difference if I'm in the ECHL making a hundred thousand dollar profit and I'm in the AHL making a hundred thousand dollar profit, presumably the AHL team would sell for more. Why? Yeah. So, you know, the AHL team then in that respect, um, the, the association with the National Hockey League is, is significantly different. Um, it's, a, it's a direct affiliation from a hockey operational piece, from a relationship perspective in terms of how those two-way NHL contracts for the players and how they're able to move freely between those two clubs. The ECHL contracts with their NHL contracted players um, a little bit more difficult and not every player then is necessarily property of that NHL parent club. So if I were to go and sign with the Reading Royals of the ECHL, um, I could effectively be called up to an American League contract by one of 31 AHL clubs because I'm still a free agent as, as, as it's thought of in that respect. But if I was signed to a contract by maybe the Hershey Bears, um, Washington could call me up um, and then I would ultimately have already been property then of Washington. So the correlation from the, the sports operational piece of it is certainly, uh, certainly going to impact that. And ultimately too, um, you know, the, the really the glitz and glamour of one league versus another it just so be prestige prestige yeah, to the yeah. owner is a big deal of i have a connection and, and traditionally level. yeah traditionally too um not always the case but traditionally the ahl plays in larger markets um than say the echl just like triple a baseball markets are typically larger demographic markets than double a markets not always the case i mean one could argue that um you know in the american hockey league that um, the Allen, Texas market, which is a suburb of Dallas, if you did uh, research on their demographics, it's exponentially larger than, say, um, Springfield, Massachusetts. Utica. Um, yeah, or, or Utica. Um, and then at the same time in the, in the affiliated baseball world, um, you know, I, I think you could, you could certainly argue that Jacksonville, which has a double-A baseball team, um, versus Syracuse, New York, which has a triple-A baseball team. I would argue independent league markets far yeah, surpass I mean, a lot of affiliated markets where the valuations are flipped. Yeah, yeah. And, and so um, that's, where, that's where it can become kind of tricky. And that's why I tell people every league and every sport is different. And if you can't get your arms around kind of the generic 
price range of what you're going to get yourself into, um, you know, sports ownership then just probably isn't for you or maybe not in that particular sport. That's why I always uh, talk to buyers too. And we talk about 10 times EBITDA, right? That's the standard kind of in baseball for at least unaffiliated independently, 10 times EBITDA. And people just can't wrap their head around how could there be a price bigger than that for affiliated baseball. And because they're going, coming from another industry where it's all numbers based. And say, this isn't numbers based anymore. This is an elite club that you get to go into and you have to pay a premium for it. Not everyone gets to go buy these properties. So um, I hear you on the, uh, the piece where it's a prestige factor. And I always say, when you get a whiff of a sports deal, your business acumen goes out the window because yeah, yeah. I mean, unless the PL is really there, going to be overpaying. Yeah. And that's the other thing too. I mean, I always tell people that when you come into these deals, you're not going to get a bank, your local bank to more than likely uh, give you some sort of loan for financing for buying a, a minor professional sports team. Um, you know, if you looked at a traditional business metric on just a traditional business, you would say that, you know, somewhere like five to 10 times EBITDA is how you'd come up with a valuation, just generically. And you could say, okay, I can live with that. And then if you were to try and go get a loan to buy a, you know, a, a baseball team that had a $20 million valuation and the team was break even, um, the bank is going to say, well, no, we're not giving you a loan because we're never going to be able to, you're never going to be able to generate the, the earnings to pay off that loan. And why would we do that? And so we tell the majority of our folks that the cash or closing mm -hmm. is the way that these deals are typically done. And then also most leagues have certain guidelines and restrictions in terms of what financing can be done on a particular deal. And, you know, would the terms and structure of a particular deal even be approved by a league? And, you know, you've certainly probably seen some creative things from where you sit in how those deals can or can be approved or, or wouldn't be approved. Um, you know, so you can probably talk a little bit more about. Uh, yeah, I'll give you an example. I mean, in general, leagues are not going to let allow a lien to be put on one of their properties. Yeah, I mean, a bank is, a bank doesn't want to own a, a baseball team. That's and the bank and we don't want a bank foreclosing on our team in the middle of the season because they don't care about seasons. They right. just know that they need to go get their property and get rid of it. So we don't allow liens typically, and I'm talking in general about all leagues, don't let liens be placed on our properties, being teams or members. So yeah. Yeah, that's, that's the case. Tommy, I want to move a little bit into the current marketplace and what it looks like. We're in an uncertain time right now. We don't know when we're going to go back to large sporting events. What does the market look like from buyers, sellers? I mean, in my experience, we're going on right now, no one's rushing to go sell their team. What does it yeah, look like for you from a buyer perspective? Yeah, so from a buyer perspective, we've gotten so many calls from buyers, believe it or not, um, who, are, who are, I don't want to say sharks in the water, but people who are saying that, hey, this is, might be a chance for me to get into sports ownership because there could be more opportunities than there are traditionally. And I tell them that that's, that's true and it's going to be the case, mm -hmm. you know, Financially speaking, you know, I know people are saying, well, we're, we have leagues and seasons that have been postponed and canceled and we don't know what's going to happen. And, and I agree with that, but we're still pretty early in how this thing is going to have a, an impact on sports leagues and sports teams and ultimately valuations and things. So there, there's lots of different 
insight that's been given and there's you know many people who have their thoughts and opinions on well you know valuations are going to go down or valuations are going to go up and um you know th this this might happen and this might happen and you know all those things are are, are potential um but I, i'd say it's pretty early from from where i sit you know to have a, a lot of teams contacting us to say we got to get out or we got to sell this team because um, there are still so many unknowns you know a lot of the businesses that have applied for certain government funding or government loans you know uh, you probably advise some of your clubs on on how to do that in the american association but um you know there's requirements of how long they have to stay in business and have to stay afloat in order for that loan to be forgiven and you know until they've met that threshold of timing um you know, we, we may just kind of be in a, in a wait and see type of pattern. The other thing you're going to see, though, which is probably going to start happening sooner rather than later, is these ownership groups that are affected, there's, there's going to be a loss. And with that loss, um, there's going to be a capital call, you know, to, to fund the loss. And I really feel for some of the smaller mom and pop owners, who have been a part of an ownership group that maybe have never had to contribute to a capital call because the team's always been profitable and successful. And now they may be called to the table to chip in their portion of a, of a capital call and they may not have that money liquidated to be able to do that. And then they may be forced to sell that in order to, um, to, to ultimately meet their expectations of the ownership group and so that that's that stinks for those people um, but i would say that those type of opportunities are going to come sooner rather than the flood of teams that are all of a sudden turning bankrupt or you know um, other alternatives there so no i would agree with that i think one it's it's early and we don't know what's going to happen i think also people are waiting for the government potentially for another round of stimulus yeah yeah canada's handing out grants to sports teams so we're waiting for that one to come down the pipe too so tommy yeah. I, I think the future is going to be interesting as well in terms of our ticketed events and what's going to happen but what i do know is true is people are going to remain interested in owning sports teams it is an elite club. I think, do you know how many minor league sports teams there are in the country? And it's technically, that's a varied term, but. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, I mean, as of today, there's 160 affiliated baseball teams. Um, there's another. There's probably, 36 independent league teams, at least in yeah, the three big leagues. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's 36 there that I would, you know, if you included some of the other independent league teams you might say that there's 40 or 50 independent baseball teams mm -hmm. there's another probably i don't know 75 to 100 summer collegiate wood bat league teams at least that are um viable profit revenue generating revenue. opportunities yeah. you know so yeah. i mean that alone that's you know that's probably close to 250 or 300 baseball teams and yep. then you get into soccer and then soccer there's tons of, insane of, amount of soccer teams yeah and then, and then there's the, hockey echl yeah, hl nwhl yeah yeah you have the nwhl then you have junior hockey i mean you have yeah um and you look at canada too they have three major junior leagues which is almost another hundred teams there and then you know the united states hockey league which has 17 16 or 17 member teams the north american mm -hmm. hockey league um 
you know, if you included the NBA G League and that, there's another 30 teams. So, I mean, there's, there's so <laughs> many. We can go on and on. Yeah, no, for sure. There's so many opportunities. And that's why we always tell people that's, that's why our niche has been minor professional sports, because in, in encompassing all of those sports and teams into minor professional sports collectively, um, they span from Portland, Maine to Vancouver, British Columbia, to Fort Myers, Florida, to mm -hmm. anywhere and everywhere in between. And, you know, if you had money and you said, well, my goal is to buy an NFL team, well, that's fine, but there might only be one NFL opportunity for an acquisition every five years. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if, if you live in New York and you're hoping that that opportunity is going to be the Jets, the Giants, you know, somebody nearby, um, that may not happen. The next one that come up that comes up might be the Denver Broncos or somewhere else. And if, if that doesn't meet what you want to do, then that's not your opportunity. So now you're back kind of waiting a little bit. But minor professional sports, because it's everywhere and the valuations are exponentially lower than the major professional sports teams and leagues, um, it affords people the opportunity to be more involved on a community basis. And, you know, one of the things that I preach to prospective owners is geography. Um, and going back to that classic car analogy that if you own a classic car and you live in Chicago, but that classic car is parked in uh, Oregon, that's difficult for you to be able to get there to be able to drive that classic car or experience that sports ownership opportunity of taking your friends, your family, your business colleagues, um, to a game, sitting in the owner's box, um, you know, experiencing all the perks of sports ownership like you would a classic car. But if that is nearby or alternatively in a geographic location that makes sense for you, i.e. somewhere where you have real estate or somewhere where you have family or where you went to school or you have business ties or business connections, the community piece of it comes into play and you know um there's more reasons and more personal ties for you to want to do um for, for you to want to own a sports team in that particular market or geographic area um and then it also opens up doors especially if you have a business per se in a particular area for you to synergize some marketing efforts or um capitalizing on the same demographic um you know for for, for those reasons. Yep. No, that's true. And I think um, the future I also see, and this has been going on for a little while is owners buying multiple teams. Yeah. So, and now I'm starting to see hockey buying soccer, baseball buying soccer, so on and so forth. So it used to be, you had the conglomerates that owned five baseball teams. Now they're venturing into other sports and utilizing facilities. What does the world look like into multiple ownership um, of multiple teams? Yeah, well, I think there's, you know, <clears throat> pardon me, that, you know, one of the, one of our, our, our clients and uh, persons that we've worked closest with is, uh, is, is Andy Kaufman, who owns the Fort Myers Mighty Muscles and the Jacksonville Icemen. The Mighty Muscles, they play in the Florida State League. They're a Twins affiliate. And the Jacksonville Ice, uh, excuse me, the Jacksonville Icemen hockey team plays in the ECHL. Um, and Andy owns both of those teams. But he's able to capitalize on both teams are in – I realize that they're, they're not next door to each other, but they're at least in the same state. And so he's able and has been able to capitalize on going to 
a Florida-based sponsor and saying, hey, you're a Florida company or you're a Florida grocery store or you're a Florida um, car dealership that has car dealerships across the state of Florida, um, you know, a sponsorship opportunity could be utilized to leverage sponsors for that particular business in two very different markets within that same state and ultimately helps Andy and his ownership group with both of his teams. And you'll see that in a lot of different ways and whether that applies to sponsorships or concessions and being able to negotiate a better concessions contract with a particular vendor because you have more revenue that you're gonna to give to that concessionaire well, that's ultimately going to help your margins and um, the cost savings for you on multiple platforms there. Um, you know, one of, uh, a lot of baseball teams have started to, that's one of the things in baseball that, that teams have tried to do for years now. And now they're being able to capitalize it on some of the non-baseball related events and revenue. So if there's a concert series that's going around, you know, and, and a baseball owner, might own a team in Illinois and another one in Indiana or somewhere else, you know, they may be able to negotiate with that tour manager or that um, operator of that concert that they could get two or three or four concerts over multiple days and dates that then ultimately help that sports owner generate revenue in all the cities where he may own a team. So I think the other piece there is, um, staff right creating efficiencies and staffing so having one social media person layered over three properties having one marketing person layered over three properties an executive finance so on and so forth you're just yeah similar to any other business you just merge and create efficiencies so yeah i think the future is those those seasoned operators that have done this before found profit are going to be able to go out and buy more properties and I, it's weird when we go to winter meetings i know you and i met there this year the lobby is filled with owners looking to buy more teams. At least that's yeah. what I found. And they're, they're hunting to see if there's market efficiencies out there. Yeah, yeah for sure. It's really interesting. And it's something I, as a commissioner, um, am looking at as well as marrying with other commissioners in terms of, hey, can our ownership groups get together and purchase a team in your league? Your guys purchase a team in our league. And we create efficiencies. And then we share best practices across leagues. Yeah, that, that's huge. Yeah, the best practices piece, I know that, um, you know, the ECHL does a really, really good job in, in sharing information within their league of um, this is how this team that's been successful is able to, um, you know, increase group sales. And here's the steps that our staff has taken to do this. And yeah, you compete amongst each other internally within a league of, you know, this sales staff is going to compete with this sales staff. But ultimately, um, you're in different markets and you're not competing necessarily for the same fan or their, or their dollars. So if you can help somebody else, you know, uh, sports is all about networking and, and, and being a team player. And so if everybody can you know, be a team player and, and do that and share those best practices, um, it can ultimately help everybody. And if it helps everybody within a particular league, you know, the rising tide raises all ships. So. Yep, no doubt. Tommy, we've appreciated your time here today. Um, thank you for the shout out in your newsletter. I think a week ago or two weeks ago, much appreciated. And I actually hope to have you on again. We're doing a little valuation series here, talking about valuations, how we come to them. I know my job as commissioner on all fronts is to raise those valuations and how do we help teams get there. So appreciate you having on. Look forward to having you on again. Yeah, no, thanks again. Thanks very much. And um, 
you know, we appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for listening to this week's episode of Commish Talks. If you enjoyed it, please leave us a review and follow us wherever you listen to your podcasts.